Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Hi, we're here today with Amy Corte, president at Aero Street, an architecture and design firm in Boston. Amy's one of the industry's global visionaries in designing commercial buildings where driverless cars and perhaps even someday air taxis can be operated safely and efficiently. She has a master's in architecture from the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and she's the recipient of the Banker and Tradesman Award for Women in Real Estate. She joins us from Boston. Morning, Amy, and welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome, and I am personally thrilled that you can be here today. You know, we always start out this podcast by trying to get to know our guests a little better. And the crack team over here, we scour social media and the press. And in doing that, I found just this incredibly great quote from you, and I want to talk to you about it to to kick off the show. The background I'd like to give all the listeners on this is Amy is one of the top commercial building designers in the world. She's a global leader on autonomous design. And yet you say, and this was in 2015, naivete about the unknown helps because you take on any challenge. You take on the challenges, you say yes, you figure out a way to do it, and you push yourself. How does that guide you today? And how does that become part of your design culture at Arrow Street? I think a lot of it is is thinking about the world, thinking about how we approach design and um, thinking that anything is possible, right? And so if we if we approach things with that open mindset, and if we approach things in a way that imagines the impossible, both through writing, through visuals, through um, kind of these future representations of what architecture and the city can be, then it actually does become that much closer to reality. And people can start imagining the future in a very different way when you have the right representation, the right visual, and those representations are then aligned with the scenarios and the thinking about the future that, you know, tech companies, whether it's driverless cars, whether it's augmented reality are, you know, really already starting to think about and we're merging those different disciplines together with architecture. When you hire folks um, right out of design school and and they become associates at Arrow Street, is it hard to convince them to start thinking that way or are they at the point where that's how they're taught? Yeah, it's actually pretty easy. It's part of their continuation of school, right? You're imagining in school, um, you know, sometimes these wild urban scenarios um, that haven't even been realized yet and probably won't be realized for the next 20 to 30 years. So our graduates right out of school are probably the easiest to convince. I think the, um, you know, the, the harder sell, if you will, might be the you know, some of the clients that have been doing this for 20 to 30 years and getting them to kind of step outside their comfort. And believe it or not, we're going to talk a little bit about that um, in just a couple minutes, because I find that also interesting about the way you approach some work. But two things really strike me about you that I, I, I want to share with this audience. The first is you have a really strong commitment to affordable housing in our communities. And also you are taking on climate change head on in how you design buildings. What I'm hoping is 
you could share a little bit about a project that you did. It was an affordable housing competition at the Boston Architectural College. Members of this coalition that were part of the competition were the Caribbean Integration Community Development Program, Harvard, Northeastern, and of course, the Boston Architecture College. What did you find that surprised you, you know, that came out of this competition? Yeah, I mean, it's a great competition that runs every year, and it's actually a competition that is um, grounded in reality. So um, the, the bank that runs it basically partners with, let's say, 10 to 15 you know, community organizations and nonprofit developers who all have a project in and around the Boston area. And then you basically coach students to respond to a real-world challenge around affordable housing. And so everything from financing the project to what it's going to look like to how it's going to be constructed and how much it will cost, how much you'll get in funding are all evaluated as part of this, as part of the competition. And so, you know, thinking about how we approach housing, approach design in some of our more disadvantaged communities around Boston and how we can bring a, an element of both design and quality in terms of in terms of the environment. You know, you mentioned climate change, but they're really interrelated. And so some of the work we've been doing here is is looking at that social impact. How can you make communities more socially resilient, um, both in the design, in the, the spaces and how they relate, as well as the materials that you're choosing within the building and the, um, the air quality kind of within the building. Everything is kind of interrelated, both environment, design, financing, funding, and it offers the students just a great opportunity to you know, we started the conversation by talking about this visioning 20 to 30 years out. This drops them in the real world immediately and has forces them to solve those real world problems of, hey, we have a budget, we have to get it built, and we need to get it financed. Amy, that's really tremendous. The next question I'm going to ask you, I think, could probably be the subject of an entire other podcast <laughs> between the two of us. But I think it's an interesting question that I've seen come up. And that's when you talk about affordable housing and someone says, well, what's a successful design? The money is going to have one answer to this. If you ask the residents and what are the outcomes that they prefer, they're going to have another one. And I'm just wondering, as a community, are we getting closer to equalizing that equation? Or what, what else do we need to do to make sure that the residents get the place that they expect and the organizations that finance it get the outcomes that, they, that they're expecting as well. Yeah, we're actually, um, here in Boston, they just passed um, kind of a series of funding streams that aligned passive house design with basically affordable housing funding. And so if your design is coming in as passive house, which really means that your energy efficiency of the building is greatly reduced, um, almost zero, um, or you know, the money that it costs to operate the building goes down dramatically once it's built. And if you're designing a building that way, you're more likely to get funding in the um, kind of from the federal side. So in that sense, they're aligning very well. I think um, the struggle remains of, of how do you how do you design buildings and design communities to permanently help the families and help the, the residents who are living in in those homes, um, you know, get to the next income level, break out of the Let's maybe switch gears a little bit and talk about architecture and climate change and the work you're doing there, because obviously it's incredibly important, and we all know that this is an issue more than just, well, we'll build a high, building high enough so the water doesn't rush into it, but you deal with things such as trying to have buildings with carbon-neutral footprints. 
buildings that are resilient. And in fact, in 2015, um, you were part of the Developing Resilience Project for the city of Boston and helping it prepare for the effects of climate change. In doing that, what kind of strikes you as the tops, top obstacles that a city like Boston faces in trying to put their arms around this and trying to prepare for the future and, and having a resilient community, but also having a community that does the most that it can to make their carbon footprint as small as possible? Yeah, so what was happening in 2015 was actually the um, ULI, so the Urban Land Institute, um, developed a series of charrettes, and I was one of the co-chairs of that. Um, and so we selected four different areas in and around Boston to look at from um, the lens of climate change. And so in that case, it was really sea level rise, storm surge, and how we might design new buildings um, adapt existing infrastructure and really adapt the existing buildings to relate to to sea level rise. Right now, in the conversation in Boston, you know, fast forward four years, um, we're looking at heat. You know, what is your resiliency for living with heat, and as well as carbon free um, by let's say 2050, not earlier, um, and how we look at our buildings much more holistically. And so it's not just you know, elevating the critical infrastructure and raising it higher, but how are we designing um, our systems in the buildings to allow you to shelter in place, to allow kind of more natural systems to occur. And then I think what, what's really interesting is we're starting to map out kind of those invisible factors of, of air pollution. So what are, the, what are those fine air particulates from the highways and what can we do in our building facades to design them more as a filter for those, the air particles, the pollutants, and to minimize um, minimize those effects on the impacts of the occupants of the buildings. I really appreciate these great perspectives. Let's switch gears a little bit, though, and let's talk about the business of building buildings and transforming them for use by, you know, certainly autonomous technologies, but technologies that we can't even envision or, or plan for yet. What I'd like to know first, though, is can you just tell me a little bit about AeroStreet, the kind of projects you work on? and give this global audience that we have an idea of what you do, because we're talking some pretty massive projects you're involved with. Yeah, so Airstreet um, has been around since the 1960s. I have not been around that long, but um, the firm has... <laughs> well, I'm not going to date myself there, but go ahead. <laughs> We've, we have a wide variety of work, which has really been the benefit to the practice. So a strong um, history of community planning, military-based planning. Um, so looking at kind of how, how planning and urban planning is evolving as we reimagine kind of both bases and kind of cities around the world. Our focus is in different practice areas include schools, retail, office, infrastructure, such as garages, as well as other um, you know, MBTA stations, which is the local slang for the Boston Tea and the subway. Residential, mixed use, you name it, we probably do almost every practice area. And the benefit of that is what we're finding in architecture, society in general, are really all these uses are collapsing onto each other. And so if you're designing a residential building, it really also needs to function as a semi-office building for people who are working from home. And so reimagining these building typologies is is both critical for the flexibility of buildings in the future, as well as how we how we approach the spaces and the buildings we design. And so even though we have a client that, you know, would come to us and say, you know, we need a residential building, it's, it's questioning what is happening in that residential building. What are the residents doing? What will they be doing in five years, 10 years from now? And how can those spaces 
um, adapt and shift and accommodate the different trends that we're seeing from society. I think it's really fascinating to understand all these preconceived notions that various segments of society have on what a building should be, what it should look like, how should it function. And I know that we've got a lot of legacy ideas about that. How hard do you find it is working with clients who sit down across the table from you with projects that probably range in the hundreds, if not billions of dollars, and they have an idea that may not last for 10, 20, or 30 years with all these dynamic changes. Is it tough making a, a, a sale that you need to walk away from your preconceived notions? How do you do that, Amy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, sometimes it depends on the client. I think our, our private clients are come approach it with a really open mind. You know, they're even if they're selling their buildings in the next five years, um, you know, as an investment to the person who will buy it, you know, they want to understand how that building can adapt and continue to evolve over the next 10 years. So I'll give you one example. We were, were working on a building in the seaport, half a million square feet, mixed use, 300 residential units. And just as one part of our presentation in how we're designing the interior spaces, you know, typical residential building has a double loaded corridor. And so you could, you could think of the design of that space of the corridor as very traditional, right? Paint, carpet, ceiling, lights. Or you could start to imagine how could that corridor facilitate different social connections amongst the residents. And so if you think about augmented reality and you know, you had Google Glass that launched a couple years ago and eventually you know, how our spaces are being augmented will be overlaid on our physical environments. And so we did a whole presentation to them which kind of bracketed from the traditional, okay, here's where we are today with carpet paint, you know, you're typical, you can pattern it up like this and it looks great. Um, and it fits into the, the vibe of the interiors. Or you can also begin to imagine how it evolves and how um, there's a lack of, of preciousness if you think about it evolving in 10 years and 20 years. And imagine this augmented layer on your corridor, which actually isn't that far off. Disney is talking about doing it in some of their hotels and experiences. Um, and so what would that augmented layer of information or visual be as you're moving down the corridor. And so we pitched it that way. We had a bunch of graphics. We had a little couple of, of videos of kind of your experience moving through the corridor. And, you know, to our surprise, we were not laughed at. Um, but it was met with, yeah, this t makes total sense, right? Because you can see it coming and and you, you build up your architectural and your spatial story as it relates to the, the technologies that are coming up. I have to ask you a question. I don't necessarily know it's a Fair question, but but it's an interesting question to me, I think. Does the use of AR and VR, does that ever seal the deal where that was the one thing a client points to and says, wow, Amy, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have gone with you. We're not going to move on. Or is it more a tool that the designers use and it helps them, you know, visualize the space and turn it into drawings that your contractor can develop. Is there, where's the role of AR and VR right now? It's a little bit of both. I don't think it is, um, I don't think it's a differentiator when you're looking at getting work. It's because it's embedded in our design process. It's, it's both helping our designers um, design more holistically, design to that experience that kind of moving through the building and the, the different layering of spaces that you get. 
So from that part and the coordination part, it's already built into our process. Where it helps from the client side is, is making that decision process quicker. And so we had a restaurant for one of our um, downtown hotels in Boston where, you know, you have the chef coming in, you have the restaurant owner, and there's a... Um, it's it's more difficult for certain people like chefs sometimes to read drawings, right? How is my space going to be perceived and to and to help our our clients both help them immerse themselves in the space and help them understand what that space could be. Actually, in this case, convince them that one, they wanted to be in the space, two, they really liked the design because they could they could get a sense of it just by walking around in it. Um, and we've done that pretty successfully or quite successfully in the last couple iterations that we've had. Last guy that walked out of here was on the phone immediately to his office saying, wow, that was the coolest thing ever. I was in the goggles. And I get it, right? So it's a... You, you've used HoloLens, um, <clears throat> Oculus, uh, even Magic Leap. If you mm -hmm. looked ahead five years, do you think that the winner in AR, VR is going to be one of those or is there another platform that you think is going gonna, is gonna to trump those three? I think it's going to be something else. Um, and I'm not an expert on which platform it is. I mean, we're, we're designing in a way that's a little bit more agnostic to, you know, you think about right now, it's kind of a combination of um, iPad, iPhone for augmented reality, plus the, the goggles for, for virtual reality. I think, I think it'll really take off and there'll be a tipping point when it becomes as ubiquitous as the iPhone. So whatever that means, whether it's a glasses that you wear that aren't quite as dorky as the Google Glass. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. we're like sunglasses. I mean, hey, I'm taking my daughter to Universal this weekend, and I'm bringing, somebody had given me those snap spectacles. You remember those? Oh, yeah, I remember yeah, that. So, you know, as being able to capture video of her riding the roller coasters and being, you know, swimming with the dolphins is perfect, right? I don't have to carry my phone, so they are a little dorky looking, but... <laughs> but if they, if they sell a billion-dollar project... Who cares, right? Little quip I think goes to you know one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's the business of building buildings because it is a business. You know, obviously the developers have an expectation, the investors have an expectation, the communities have an expectation, and if I'm sitting across from you at the table and I look at you and I and I say. Arrow Street, I, I want your team to design a building for me. What are they asking for in terms of lifespan of a building? You know, how, how is the building future-proofed against new technologies? What are they expecting in terms of access? What, what are kind of the building blocks of what you need to think about on the business end of putting a building together for a client? Yeah, those are good questions. Um, I mean, there's the underlying assumption that it will evolve in the future, I would say, with any of our clients. And so they're not to just get it open and it's done. Um, I think what, what we look at and how we approach the design is um, almost through a series of speculative or scenario-based planning exercises. And so, okay, we've got this space. It can function this way. When it opens, it can be adapted to um, host these types of program, you know, during the lifespan of the building. And then, you know, 10 years from now, when you have a very different, maybe either urban condition around it or due to climate change or due to just shifting technologies, you know, take parking, for example, you know, here's how you might repurpose the space over the lifetime of the building. I would say the other thing that we do early on is, is use data. And so we have a data scientist who is working on a number of projects that 
really looks at how people are using either the space now or using that area of the city right now. So downloading the kind of data that's available just through apps like Strava, which kind of maps how you bike through and move through cities and revealing these these other layers of how we use space that aren't typically visible when you just get a survey from the client is is critical to how we how we start to position our buildings on the site, how we start to think through how people use the buildings and experience the buildings. And, and that helps us when we finish the buildings to understand, okay, how did, how did behavior shift? How did, do people move through these spaces differently, um, you know, after the building opens? And so you're kind of doing it at the beginning, you're doing it in the middle, um, which I didn't talk about as part of the kind of design process, because you can do predictive analysis and kind of understand, okay, if I put a destination here, and a hub here and a different program here, how might people move through these virtual spaces of the building as I'm simulating it in order to you know, create a, a design that you probably wouldn't have thought about doing had you not relied on data from the beginning. Does that make sense? That, that makes a, a lot <laughs> of sense. And you know, I, just, I wanna just talk just one more minute about lifespan of a building because I don't want to say that affects me every day, but I see evidence of it every day. So from my college age through most of my professional career, with a couple of exceptions, I've lived in, down and worked in downtown Washington, D.C. And there are buildings that I remember brand new being put up that are now being torn down. And it occurs to me that someplace between a 30 and 40 year point, at least in the Washington, D.C. metro area, that seems to be the lifespan of a building. Can we expect that in the future? I mean, is it are we in a cycle where every 35, 40 years we'll be tearing down what we have and building something new? Or is that the way the last generation of buildings was designed? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't think we can be. I don't think we have a choice with the, um, you know, the way the environment is evolving. Um, we have got to do a better way at looking at the durability of the materials that we're putting in our buildings, how we're constructing them, and how we're adapting them and reusing them. So, you know, the Congress Square project that just opened, which is a series of early 1900s bank buildings, we basically adapted, renovated the lower floors, and then added a seven-story addition on top. That's the best use and the best kind of series of examples for from both the environmental climate change perspective and how we are kind of reusing our, our resources. I mean, if you think about the impact that just building construction alone has on the environment, it's crazy in terms of the waste that goes into the construction process, the, the effects of creating new buildings all the time and tearing down what is currently existing. So it's not to say it's never going to happen, but somehow as a society, we have to figure out a way around that. So Amy, that's a great segue into my last question in this segment. And that deals with the, the idea that if we accept that we need to have buildings resilient to climate change, that we don't want essentially disposable buildings that every 25, 30, or 40 years get torn down and rebuilt, what kind of role do you see cities playing in this? Do they have to be more aggressive in terms of zoning? Will market forces take care of this? Or what's the balance we need to shoot for? I'm not sure it has to do with zoning, but I do think um, policy making, right? So and we're starting to do that in Boston where, you know, what is the life cycle 
cost of the building, you know, getting into the materials that you're, um, you're putting into the building, evaluating those, um, understanding where they're being sourced from and what, um, what their impact on the environment and the climate is. So, you know, there's some policy and regulations out around, um, you know, being carbon free or carbon neutral and those being built into requirements for the permitting process, um, at least in the major cities of California, New York, and Boston, and obviously around the world as well. So that that's probably where it will come from first. Um, and then maybe through the building codes, I kind of doubt it. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think you'll see it from the institutions first as uh-huh. well, long-term holders. but Okay. Let, let's, you know, shift our gears a little bit and talk about incorporating technology in, into these buildings, you know. How do you as an architect and how do you as a firm and, and you know, maybe expanding this bigger to, to the entire community of, of commercial developers, how do you plan for technology that isn't here yet? So, you know, the big, for instance, everybody uses. Ten years ago, there weren't iPhones. Now there are iPhones ten years later. They control our lives. They run our businesses. They run our families and even our children. And we know that if you look at another 10 years, there are going to be more disruptive technologies. And 10 years after that, is there a way to future-proof a building? And how do you as an architect start to identify technologies that you think may, may affect how your building is used and how your building is viewed in the community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's impossible to future-proof everything, but I think... In a way, our buildings are pretty resilient and can be repurposed to a lot of things. Um, you know, the buildings from the 1900s in Congress Square, I guarantee you those architects weren't thinking about how they would be adapted from, you know, banks to office to hotel to, um, you know, even supporting a, a new addition on top. I think from from our perspective and how we how we approach it, it is it is looking at the changes of technology that are coming, and then again, kind of running through those scenarios. So in the case of, of parking, it's running out almost a series of, of design studies and tangents. So, okay, you want a parking garage that functions as conventional parking now. Here's what it looks like, and here's your baseline cost, and the, you know what, what that section and plan and kind of efficiency would be. And then you run out another scenario simultaneously that says, okay, what if we started to plan for five years down the road, um, you know, when this building actually opens um, because of permitting requirements and, you know, just getting things approved, especially in these urban centers, you know, take can take three to four to five years to get a project approved, um, drawn up, and then constructed. And so what will those incremental steps of technology be then? And how might how should the building be designed for when it opens? And then looking 10 years out, um, at least with parking, because you can imagine there's um, self-parking cars um, that have one level of autonomy, and then you get all the way up to the higher levels of autonomy of you know the cars driving and parking themselves. And what does a what does a building such as a garage need to need to look like that? And so so there's that kind of scenario, um, future proofing, if you want to say. Um, as well as looking at, okay, what if I don't need all of that parking? How could I reclaim some of those spaces in my basement or in the garage for other uses? Um, and so what load factor do I need to design in now? And so we've run out these studies with a 
a couple of clients um, pricing it. So if I had to increase my floor to floors and get a higher structural load so I could accommodate, um, you know, office in a garage or hotel in a garage, what would that mean from the budget? Yeah. So this whole discussion <laughs> about a driverless future, you know, mm -hmm. whether that date is going to be five years or 10 years down the road, um, who is kind of dry, you know, who's driving that conversation? Are the developers coming to you and saying, well, we think market trends indicate that we're going to have a preponderance of driverless vehicles approaching our buildings and parking in our structures. Is it you as the architect with your finger on the pulse of the technology community that drives that discussion? Is that cities who drive the discussion in particular? Who right now is, is driving the driverless dialogue? <laughs> Nobody's driving now. I'm just oh, kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I walked right into that. No, it's actually, for us in Boston, it's a great mix of all three. And I think the question that our clients are asking is not, hey, driverless cars are coming, um, how should we design for them? But rather they're saying, hey, our residents and or our office workers are not owning cars or are not driving into the city um, to get to these buildings or driving to the excrement. Like ex-urban areas, kind of the outskirts of the city. Um, and so we don't need that many parking spaces is really what the client is saying. And so um, and then we're approaching it from, okay, what happens when that, that required number drops even more? And so what could you do with those spaces then? And so we've then planned different retail spaces to go into the garages, different um, commercial restaurant spaces to go into the garages and basically it becomes a future kind of design option that they can pull out, you know, five years, 10 years from now, or even possibly as soon as when the building opens, because some municipalities have a pretty high parking ratio still, um, even though, you know, the client, especially on the affordable housing side, knows that their residents just won't have Having lived and, and parked in the big city, various big cities across the country, my expectation of parking garages has always been, well, they're about 10 stories below ground level. They're cold, they're musty, they're damp, they're disgusting, and I, I can't believe I'm leaving my car down here. So, so in your scenario, does that mean we're moving the parking garages someplace else, or does it say suddenly these traditionally forgotten about spaces underneath the buildings, you have the ability to make them a whole lot more appealing. And it's not just, oh, well, we're going to open up, um, you know, McDonald's on level 25 below grade. Is How do you approach that? Yeah, first of all, I, I'd say max below grade here in Boston with the water level is probably maybe three stories below grade. Um, so okay, so, like uh, 10, so it's not too bad. <clears throat> in the parcel K case, we ended up at one story. We started at three and dropped it to one. Um, and so in that case, when you're only going one story below grade and that, that floor to floor height is a lot higher, you know, we've been putting everything from the grocery stores to climbing gyms, right? You knock out kind of that connection between the ground floor, first floor street level and the below grade. And all of a sudden you have this great triple height space that connects to the street. That's one possibility. We did that in, I believe it was Long Island for a climbing gym. So that is, that's one way to look at it. I think the other way to look at it and think about it is how we own cars is also changing. And we talked about this a lot when we 
did some work for Volvo in Boston of, you know, the model of car ownership versus car subscription. Um, eventually that, that price point will, um, will make sense for those people, including me, who don't really don't want to own a car. And I'll admit I live in the suburb and drive into Boston every day. But if I can, you know, hop in a car, get dropped off at the office and not have to worry about paying for parking, walking from my parking garage to the office, that's great. As you know, I'm not an architect, nor do I ever, you know, fake myself to be one. But in the reading I've been doing, it, it says that one of the biggest space wasters right now are the ramps. Mm-hmm. And is there, so is there a way to, to change the way the ramps are? Um, do you design ramps that can essentially be torn down quite easily and, and repurposed, you know, into that climbing wall? Or how do you change, you know, actual structure of a parking garage, you know, for that conversion? Yeah, and I... Oh, man, I hate the idea of tearing down the ramps um, just because that puts us back at the same you know, possibility of right 30 to 40 years out, your building is already obsolete. Um, I would like to think that we can do a better job in creatively repurposing those ramps. You know, how, how you might think of a garage being partially reoccupied, you know, it might not be the entire garage. You may still have charging stations down there for self-driving cars and it being a different model of the business, right? So when you have the TNCs that need to recharge, need to be cleaned, they can still get into and access that garage by themselves through the ramps, but the rest of the garage is repurposed for something else is one possibility. You know, that would be my suggestion to the architect. No, 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 sure. So I would also suspect that you've had developers look at driverless vehicles in particular, and, you know, maybe come to a conclusion, a right one or, or a wrong one, that says something like, right now, the first cars that we're going to see that are going to be either truly driverless or, or really approaching that are going to be luxury vehicles. And those vehicles are going to cater to a certain socioeconomic segment. And by the way, that's a segment that if we cater to, they might be high revenue clients. Does anybody come to you and say, hey, we need a building that in the near term is gonna cater to this group of people who view driverless cars as a luxury and then morph our building you know, to when driverless cars become more of a mass commodity, more of you know, something that's available to everybody? Yeah, that's... An interesting question. We've actually had the opposite effect. Really? So had, I was uh, wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, and it was really around um, the TNCs adopting autonomy and driverless cars first. And so, hey, we need we need a place, basically, a, a think of it as a combined parking garage plus um, almost like IT data center, right? That begins to merge both of these typologies together and and disperses these hubs around and in the urban area. And so I think the common thought is, oh, you're going to have these these hubs for these vehicles on the outskirts of the city, and then somehow you're going to, you know, get into the city. In this case, it was it was looking at these shared mobility solutions as being smaller facilities 
dispersed through um, these underutilized pockets in the urban area or at airports and how how that whole garage could change and evolve into um, you know supporting the high electrical loads that would be needed supporting kind of the data uploads from the cars and supporting the, the cleaning and the refueling and the or recharging and deliveries too if you think about the cars hosting passengers plus delivery in the near term there are probably different levels of autonomy that we're going to expect from our vehicles before we ever you know hit that level five take me to work and wake me up when we get their car do you think a building needs to adapt to various levels of autonomy or should the car be able to adapt itself to the building and you can you know just build agnostically a building that is friendly to the perception systems, that's friendly to, to the structures that an autonomous vehicle needs. What, is there a balance there that you've been looking at? Yeah, I definitely think it's a little bit of both because one would assume that the car technology, um, you know, whether it's LiDAR or something else, that they're going to be able to navigate through a fairly controlled environment as a parking garage. I think what we have to um, be mindful of as architects is, again, it kind of gets back to that efficiency and because the construction costs um, are so high on these already, what is that, what's that ideal or optimized floor to floor height for say self-parking cars? Um, You know, when cars and other micro mobility solutions start to get smaller, what does that look like kind of stacked into a garage or a building, um, and that that's where it gets a little trickier because right now we're planning it with these higher floor-to-floor heights to accommodate um, kind of these transitional technologies of stackers and valets, um, and then adapting those to either other spaces um, or self-parking cars. So you're dropping off in a in a courtyard, and the car is parking itself is different. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this kind of reminds me um, of the first time you and I met. We met at a panel uh, back in 2018 in San Diego, I believe it was. And at, it was a, a, a panel where we were discussing autonomy in the airport environment. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the things that a number of people came up to me and said was, I can't wait for driverless vehicles to get to this uh, airport of mine because we're going to save money on paint. We're not going to have to paint all these uh, walls. We're not going to have to paint lines. Um, We'll have to put in extra electricity, um, but that's for charging stations. We can make these um, parking structures dark because nobody needs to see anything. And, you know, oh, by the way, we're not going to need all this air conditioning down there because all these vehicles are going to run on electricity. And generate a lot of heat. Yeah, and, and... you know, I, I think you'd agree that we're finding that parking structures for autonomous vehicles are probably a little bit more complex than maybe what we thought about a year or two years ago. And I'm just wondering, do you foresee the day when a client will tell you, well, I'd like to, you know, adapt this parking garage for autonomy, but it's going to cost too much in the overall scheme of this building. I just can't do it. Or do you think the the onus will be on the building owners to make all the design choices, to put in all the infrastructure, to make it work for those cars? Because, you know, that's the future that's heading towards us. Yeah, and we're very much in the the first situation right now where when we're costing some of the stuff out, 
you know, unless that real estate is tremendously valuable, the costs are are still a little bit too prohibitive to to future proof it at the beginning. And so I think in that case, it's it's almost like our our job as architects is to bracket the options early. And so you can you can develop this menu of options. We can go down the path of designing the building to be um, you know be able to adapt in the next next decade and then knowing okay there's going to be other technologies that are coming online you know our car is getting lighter so maybe our loads aren't quite as much Um, our car is getting smaller so maybe it'll be slightly different I mean there's so many unknowns that you're then you're revisiting the probably the same series of questions five or ten years from now and and solving it from that way so I'm I'm ultimately the optimist maybe it's you know that buildings can be adapted most buildings if you've taken good care of them and have put in the you know the maintenance on the on the infrastructure that that there is a solution kind of if you don't put it in right away and and let me just ask you one other thing on the on this topic before we close it out and i'm just wondering you know you're a person who deals with basic mil- building materials all the time. You have to, know, as an architect, you have to know concrete better than just about anybody else on the planet. You have to know about steels. You need to know about coatings. I'm just wondering, is there enough research yet where you feel comfortable as an architect to say, well, this particular blend of concrete will not be LIDAR friendly, will not be friendly to the perception system, or this brand of paint? that will be friendly. Um, are we there yet? Has the basic research been done that will assist building designers and architects in putting together the right materials for a building? Or are we still kind of haven't really touched that as a, a community? I would guess to say that that hasn't been talked about as much as a community. I think what is just getting talked about is you know, looking at concrete from that Again, that life cycle kind of carbon cost perspective as it relates back to the environment, I think. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that's, that's always, you know, brought up to me, you know, mm-hmm. in conversations about, well, um, that is a beautiful concrete wall, but it is entirely featureless. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it is so slick and without texture that my LiDAR system is never going to see that wall. So, <laughs> so why did you make my job harder? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and, and let's just kind of maybe take a look at the future. Um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly driverless to me is on the near term. But, you know, you and I have seen Uber Elevate start from just this small idea to vehicles that are actually flying today. Do you think that urban air mobility, that this, you know, low emission air travel is going to become a predominant part of designing new buildings or is that just going to, our developers going to say, um, yeah, this building will be my hub. That building will not be my hub. Where, where are you um, hearing the scuttlebutt, as, as they say, when it comes to urban air mobility? I think it's mostly around deliveries, right? So if we think about how much space, loading areas, um, docks, just how much the delivery trucks also affect the traffic on our urban streets, that's where... I would say the most excitement is because as you begin to have smaller micro deliveries, whether they're, you know, from the air or in smaller vehicles that are traveling autonomously on sidewalks, which gets into a whole nother realm of sidewalk design and street design, you know, that's where the excitement is because if you can reclaim 
you know, what can be 1,000, 2,000 square feet, depending on the building size, on the street front, you can radically start to change that, that urban environment for the better, I think. Um, and so that's where I think us architects are most excited by. Really? If I flip this another way, are you saying that it makes more sense to have a landing pad for the Amazon drones, the UPS drones, and all these other delivery drones right now than it does to have the landing pad for the helicopter that takes four people, you know, off the building and, and does urban air mobility. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure if it's a, a landing pad solution for the drones, because again, I think they could be delivered on the street or off hours in a different way. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, that's that's probably the near future for that, at least, you know, in Boston, so we say that. Well, as goes Boston, so goes the rest of the world. That's what I've heard. <laughs> so on that note, Amy, I want to just really thank you so much for being with us today on Thinking Through Autonomy. As always, um, you have provided some incredible insight. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and you are always welcome back to talk to us. Thank you so Thanks, much. Sir. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.